with Chris Klaus. Um, Startup Exchange, for those of you who are not super familiar with us, we are an on-campus organization at Georgia Tech. We promote student entrepreneurship through all levels of education. And we run events essentially every Friday, as well as one-off events throughout the month if they come up. So smaller workshops, speaker events, fireside talks, and whatnot. We also run an incredible membership program here, uh, which I'm going to bring on Santosh to introduce in just a second. But we have events, as I said, every Friday. We have all of them listed on our social media and our Eventbrite. You will all be getting a post-event email as well with that info, so I highly, highly encourage you to check it out, network with the people around you, and build those relationships. So, Santosh, thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Santosh. Up here with me, I have Judah, Ravant, Sarov, and our friend Gabe couldn't make it today, but we wanted to introduce you guys to the membership program. Membership program is currently in its second year, and for those of you who don't know, the membership program is different from the general events we have. What you guys are, what you guys, sorry. <laughs> what you guys are at right now is a general event which we host every Friday, and we generally have a bigger speaker come in and talk about uh, their journey through the entrepreneurship process. The membership program specifically really focuses on a more specialized uh, program for anyone more interested in startups. It's an easy way to gain hands-on experience even internship opportunities, mentorship from entrepreneurs in the Atlanta area, as well as having the opportunity to talk and really ask questions to different people in the entrepreneurship community. Um, we also pro provide you guys with the opportunity to compete in the pitch competition and ideation challenges and really give you guys skills workshops to really learn more about startups, how they work, and entrepreneurship in general. Yeah, so the main thing about our program primarily is gaining a community. It's a great way to gain a group of friends as well as a group to really work on an idea with and really execute that at the pitch competition at the end of the semester. And we'll talk about that more uh, right now, uh, right after this actually. So last semester we had a few past engagements with uh, these companies up here, Toucan AI, Nightly, Presso, uh, Human Capital is a VC fund who we interacted with, and then we had TechScore Ventures and ATDC. So they all really helped us out that last semester and we really plan on bringing in more companies this semester and giving you guys a better experience. So with the semester project, the pitch competition, if any of you guys were able to come to the pitch competition, actually, can you guys give me a quick raise of hands if you came last semester? Okay, awesome. Well, every semester, Startup Exchange tries to host a pitch competition. This will be our second semester doing this. It is a school-wide pitch competition where groups who have ideas for startups will really present their idea as well as the membership program kids. And last semester, we actually had uh, the winner, Jose, and his team actually won. They were in the membership program, and they actually received prize money from uh, venture capitalists, as well as just recognition for their idea. On the left, we have Gabe and his company, or their idea that they were presenting. It's just a great way to really present your idea in a very low-risk manner, and just really gain a lot of experience in general. So who we're looking for for the membership program, really you don't need to have any specific skills. Just be curious, passionate, a self-starter, and someone who has the capability to lead. So if you guys are interested in really gaining more experience or just specialized workshops and networking events and really talking to Atlanta entrepreneurs, we have the membership program really here for you guys, help you guys learn as much as possible. So our application is actually due today, but we are planning on extending it to this Sunday at midnight. So if you guys are interested, please Take a picture of this QR code at this link. You can apply as soon as possible. And if you guys have any questions, make sure to talk to any of us after the event today. 
Other than that, thank you. And if you guys have any questions, make sure to ask. All right, not gonna keep you guys waiting here any longer. Uh, we have my other co-director, Stevan, giving the fireside talk with a name that needs no introduction. Please welcome Chris Klaus. Thank you. Check, check, check. Test. One, two, one, two. Thank you guys for coming. Um, this is going to be a very exciting event. We have a very um, notable individual here. And um, I think it's going to be a really good uh, experience, a really good talk to learn about his past. Um, he's had a really good um, impact just here on the Georgia Tech community, um, coming out of Georgia Tech, um, selling a company for a lot of money that you guys will kind of learn about in a little bit, um, and then kind of giving back. He's started a lot of programs that we learn about, um, and it's going to be really exciting. Um, it's going to be a bit more of an interactive chat. Um, I would like to encourage you guys to submit questions to our Instagram page. If you would like to ask, um, there will be a little segment towards the end um, where we'll, we'll ask uh, Chris Klaus some of those questions, as well as at the very end, um, we can take some questions from the audience as well. Um, so maybe just to start off a little bit about your background, your experience going through Georgia Tech, um, and then kind of moving in through getting acquired by IBM, and then your imp impact on Georgia Tech would be really important here. Sure. Everybody can hear me all right, I assume? All right, perfect. Um, I'll give you a little backdrop on uh, myself, and one of the things I've been working on is how, how do you uh, turn ideas into something that creates value and wealth and and uh, that's one of the things I, I think about in terms of helping others achieve that as well. And for myself, uh, I'm, I'm a technology person, probably like a lot of you guys. And from that, uh, what got me into technology as a, as a kid was video games. Anybody here play video games or half the people? Okay. The other half did play video games at some point, I'm sure. And uh, for me, I, I grew up really enjoying video games, and then I was like, it'd be fun to write one. And so for me, the, the, that got me into coding was I wanted to make a video game. And that was like in middle school, and it wasn't a very good video game, um, but I did learn how to code. And from that, um, I also was getting into how to connect to other computers. I grew up in Florida. And one of the things I wanted to do was get more video games, so I found places where I could download them. And it called one of the places was the internet. And uh, while I was learning how to connect to the internet, uh, back then it was it was pretty challenging. It wasn't as easy as is today, but back then you really had to know uh, a university. And I was in Florida, in Sarasota, Florida. Anybody been to Sarasota? No, it's it's a nice place. There's a lot of beaches. A lot of retirement people down there, and uh, but on the weekend I was like, oh, let me uh, connect to these computers, and I got into hacking, um, trying to figure out you know how to connect to computers and get into them, and um, it was a kind of an interest of mine. I thought it was kind of cool that people would hack into NASA and other places, and uh, back then I was like, oh, this is really kind of easy, but it took a lot of time. So I actually. Uh, took my skills for writing a game. I was like, oh, that, I could automate moving a ship around on the screen. 
I can automate what hackers do. And so my first program in security was writing a program to automate what hackers do. And it would scan a network, find all the machines, find all the services, check to see if there's file shares open or email was open and you know, 20 or 30 other vulnerabilities that you could have on a network. Um, and I, I came up to Georgia Tech as a freshman and didn't know what to do with the software. So I released it for free and um, had a lot of response from around the world, people downloading it, using it. And they were like, wow, this is great. And I, I uh, received a phone call from, from a, a computer emergency response team. And a the gentleman there was like, have you thought about commercializing your product or your software? And I, you know, I was like, no, I hadn't even considered it. But now that you've asked me that question, it's a great question. So I was sitting in math class thinking, man, if I could just charge a dollar per vulnerability, this could be worth a lot. Because I had actually ran it against uh, Georgia Tech's uh, network at the time. I didn't change my grade just officially, but uh, uh, I did find that the software worked really well at Georgia Tech. And uh, it turned out this dean of students at the time uh, got a log of every connection. So I, I, I got called into her office and she was like, what is this? You know, she's like, this is a book of what you did on our network of every connection. What were you doing? And I had explained to her that I didn't technically break into anything. I just ran this and it found everything on the network that was uh, available. Um, and they were like, don't do that again. So that was, that was as, as close to being in trouble. I was like, all right, thank you. I won't, I won't do anything uh, at tech other than start a business. So I was, uh, announced a commercial version. Uh, I was over in the Smith dorm. Anybody live in the Smith dorm? Wow, Smith crowd. Woo! Oh. Still cold showers? Is, yeah, the bathrooms were always horrible and uh, <laughs> probably hasn't changed. But uh, the, uh, my, and I had a, a room, one of those, I guess, in the corner rooms where you have three other roommates. And um, at that time, we didn't have cell phones, which is, can tell you how long ago that was. But basically, uh, I was getting all these support calls, and all my, my roommates were like, we're tired of being your support guys. And, uh, getting angry about it, and you know what? And I found that the more I worked on my startup, if you guys pursue a startup, uh, it'll have an adverse or inverse relationship to your grades, and I was like, I'm either gonna do a startup right or I'm gonna do my grades. I'm not gonna fail at both. And so, um, called up my, mom, my grandma, and who lived here in Roswell, Georgia, and asked her, hey, if I could set up um, my company's headquarters in her spare guest bedroom. And uh, she said yes, which turned out great for both of us because um, I gave her some equity for that. And uh, <laughs> she uh, wasn't using the spare guest bedroom. So that, that became headquarters for internet security systems for uh, probably almost six to nine months. And while I was starting off, uh, I didn't know marketing or sales. All I knew is how to code this, but I knew I had a I got incorporated, I, you know, basic stuff that I could figure out on my own. Uh, I then, uh, one of the things that I had gotten into uh, early on, even before Georgia Tech, I'd actually, because of my internet access, I had actually gotten into the Department of Energy's uh, network a little bit, 
and found this guy who was like, hey, we appreciate you helping us. Would you like to come out and work on uh, our network and supercomputers and stuff? And I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. And they, I actually went out to Lawrence Livermore National Labs. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lawrence Livermore. Um, but it's one of those large research sites for like nuclear and fission and fusion. And while we're out there, they were getting hacked um, by German hackers and Russian hackers. Uh, a lot of stuff hasn't changed. Um, but, uh, but basically, while I was out there, they didn't know how to secure their network. So I was using that software I had developed. And they actually loved it because they were fixing a lot of issues. So when I came to tech, they actually offered me to come back out the following summer as an intern, and they were going to pay me to work on the software. And, uh, you know, it was going to be like 15, 20 bucks uh, an hour back then. That was a lot of money, probably not a bad internship even today. And, uh, you know, the problem was I, I accepted, I was going to go out there. Their budget got cut. And then they called me up, said, we can't hire you this summer. So I, I kind of cried. I was like, oh, that was what I was going to do. But it, it actually inadvertently turned out to be the best thing for, for me personally, because if they had paid me to work on it, the DOE, Department of Energy, would have owned the IP. And I don't know how many of you guys use DOE software. Probably nobody. And it probably would have ended up sitting on the shelf um, but that's probably the, um, the best pre-firing I've ever had where, you know, I didn't get hired, but they, they fired me before I could start just because of the, their own budget situation. So I was able to keep the IP, roll it into my company. Um, what, the reason I want to let you know about the background of that, they actually ended up being one of my first customers. So the Department of Energy reached out and said, we want to buy your software. And I think it was Sandia National Labs. They had solved the software and they wanted to buy it. And you know, I tried to work out some pricing by the time they called to say, how, how big is your network? Is it a class C or a class B size network? You know? And um, when they, when they uh, sent it over, I, I was like, oh, that looks like, um, I don't know, I'll give you a deal, $50,000 you know, deal. And, the guy on the phone from Sandia National Labs was like, ooh, 50,000. I have authorization for up to 30,000. If it's 50,000, you have to fly out, convince my boss, and all that stuff. But for 30,000, I can sign it over the phone. I was like, oh, my new pricing is 30,000. <laughs> and uh, so lesson is take the money while you can. And so that's what I did. And basically, that, that got me a few more computers. Uh, I was pretty excited because it was it was a lot of fun sending a, a floppy disk and a eight page manual and going wow I'm getting thirty grand for this, and then uh, what was really nice is that Sandia talked to Oak Ridge National Labs, uh, they then talked to uh, there's a there's a there's about seven sites, uh, Lawrence Livermore they all became customers like within the first year, so at you know, within uh, within a year, I did over a hundred grand, and I was like, "Wow, this is actually really exciting." Um, I can afford now to get a official uh, warehouse space. So I moved in. I found a space in Norcross, and and I had like three offices, so I could triple the size of my company and um, move out from my. I, I wanted to hire some people to help me grow it, and. At that point, I looked to, you know, who do I find to help me grow this? 
I knew the coding side, I knew the engineering, but I, I really wanted the sales and marketing because I knew if I don't know, I'm not a sales guy and I'm closing deals that were fairly easy, how do I um, get somebody who's out there really selling it? And so I talked to, I had an attorney that helped me with my license agreements and I asked them like, hey, do you know anybody else that helps startups like mine? And they put me in touch with some other entrepreneurs, and long, long story short, I then connected with a gentleman, Tom Noonan. I don't know if you've ever heard his name, but he's, he's got the Noonan Courtyard here on campus, but he, um, he had a marketing and sales background. He also came from Georgia Tech previously, but he had, he had gone on to Harvard Business School, so I hadn't done that, so I was like, great, that's a good complimentary thing. The very first day he started, I was like, I'm going out to NASA, to JPL, which is in Pasadena, California, um, and I think they're gonna wanna buy this software. They haven't bought yet, but whenever I demonstrate the software, there's usually a need, they, they find a need to buy it. And uh, so we go out to NASA, and it, I'm gonna be doing a demonstration to their system administrators that make sure their networks are all secure and the, I remember the sysadmin going, oh, you're not gonna find anything on our network. This is NASA, we've secured it all. So when I ran the software, all these alarms went off and passwords came out. And uh, this general who ran you know, JPL was basically like, we need to talk to you and took us in the back room. And they're like, we need to buy your software right now. <laughs> and, and Tom and I hadn't, it was his first day. So I was like, hey, what about, um, I had to huddle in the corner with them. And, I told him, I normally charge like 30 grand. And he's like, all right, don't worry, I, I'm gonna throw out a bigger number. And like, he offered 100 grand. And the guy was like, all right, we'll take it. So I high-fived <laughs> high Tom because he tripled my revenue from what I normally do in one day. And so with that, we, we you know, he, he helped get the sales and marketing going. He helped, uh, uh, we, we, I, ha I wasn't very familiar with the venture capital model, but we started talking to VCs, and we raised actually like $4 million uh, within six months of him joining, which was nice, because um, that, that really allowed us to accelerate. Um, and the things that they looked for were, you know, why did they put $4 million? Hey, I had a product. I actually had quite a few customers that were, um, you know, like NASA and... Uh, DOE and, and many others like Harvard and other schools around the world had, had acquired the software. Um, and that money helped us grow. I don't know if you guys are, as you're looking to scale, we kind of separated the money into two pots. One was for engineering. I wanted to move faster than what I could code. So I wanted to bring on a full team and really scale that. The other side of the money, basically the other half went towards marketing and sales. And in the first year, we actually opened up an office in Brussels. That was our uh, EMEA office, and that would cover all of uh, Europe, Middle East, Africa, uh, Russia, et cetera. And so we were able to quickly ramp up sales, marketing, support on that side of the world. A year later, we raised another $6 million, um, and that helped us, again, ramp up our, our technology and our engineering but well, we took half the money, put it into sales and marketing, and that half, we also opened up an office in Asia, uh, in Tokyo, and, and set up ISSKK, and that covered Australia and Singapore and all these other countries all over that side of the world. So we had the world covered, 
And the nice thing is, you know, TCP, IP, internet security was something you could go anywhere, and even if they didn't speak English, what, for whatever reason, TCP, IP was something that never translated locally, so I could understand they were talking about the internet and security. So uh, worldwide, they were, they were buying into it. We grew from the scanner software that I developed where I was looking for vulnerabilities. We used that knowledge base of all these vulnerabilities. We turned that into monitoring for people exploiting it, so it became like one of the first intrusion detection, and then we've turned it into protection uh, system out there. Kind of a burglar alarm. We could watch who's trying to hack you. We then uh, were one of the first companies to pioneer managed security services, which is a precursor to SaaS software as a service. Um, and that really is one of the reasons why IBM acquired us uh, later on. We took the company public after we raised four million, then six million, we took the company public on the NASDAQ and we raised another $50 million. Um, and that was nice and that allowed us to kind of scale it even further. Um, and it, was, it happened very fast, within three or four years uh, to take it public and scale it up to um, you know, a large international company and continue to work on it for a long time. Uh, as a public company, I was, I was telling Stefan, one of the things that I, one of the first things I did after we took the company public, and a couple years later, I was like, I wanted to give back to Georgia Tech. And, <clears throat> you know, all my, the reason I'm here in Atlanta was Georgia Tech. My first CEO was from Georgia Tech. Uh, a lot of my management team was from Georgia Tech. <clears throat> if you can imagine, a lot of the engineers were from Georgia Tech. So I wanted to give back. And um, there was an old, uh, building that computer College of Computing used, and they were like, we'd like to upgrade our building. So I was, I was, I was like, oh, I'd love to help you. And so I uh, was, was able to donate some money, and the timing of it worked out. Uh, what I did, though, was instead of give money, this isn't really public info, but it's behind the scenes, I actually gave, it, gave them the value of the money in form of stock. And the reason is, if you start talking to your accountant and stuff. They're like, every time you sell stock, you gotta pay capital gains on it. But if you gift it straight to Georgia Tech, I don't have to owe taxes on that gift. So I was like, oh, that's a, that's a no-brainer. And I had a lot of stock. So I, I'll, give you, I'll give Tech a lot of stock. And it was like $15 million worth of stock. And then like, um, they, Tech has a, it's, the foundation has a policy to sell pretty quickly the stock that I gave them. And what happened was, between the time I gave it to them and like four or five days later, when they went to sell it, it had actually gone up like to like $20 million. And they were very happy about that, <laughs> that they, they weren't as quick to sell it right away. But then the, the amazing thing is, uh, the following week, the market crashed in like 2001 timeframe. Um, and so that they sold it worked out really well because they had the cash and uh, I got recognized for giving them much more valued stock a week earlier than at, at the bottom. So uh, with that though, uh, I've been very excited to see the, the building come together. Obviously you guys probably spent a lot of time going through the Klaus building at some point. Um, one of the things though, not only did I want to give back on a, a building per se, but it, really to, to help attract the best, especially professors and others, students who are looking at different campuses. How do we get the best to come here? One of the things I also wanted to do was figure out why 
don't we have others doing what I did, which was do a startup? And when I went around campus, I'd always ask, like, you know, I'd have meetings with different groups and, you know, I'd find these students and they always had great ideas or they're working on really cool projects. So I was like, oh, why, why not do a startup? And the number one blocker, and this is about five, six years ago, number one blocker is there was no startups on campus. Uh, literally, the first year, um, I, I put together a program to try and address that. Um, but it's just culture. Like even today, you can talk to students going, I just want to get my degree, get out, and go, go get a job. And you know, back then, I was like, well, you know, yeah, you want to get out, but why don't you get out doing a startup? And so uh, with that, I found a dean here at Georgia Tech that would help me put together a program called CreateX. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. Um, but the thing that was really cool that I think is a, a good hack was I was like, why don't we take the internship program and the co-op program, and if you're going to intern for a large company, why don't you intern for your own company? And that allowed a lot of the students, because the other blocker was time. How do you do a startup and be a Georgia Tech student? That was probably the next thing was like, I can't, I don't, I got a full load of classes. No way am I doing a startup. So enough kids are doing internships. I'm like, why don't you spend three months building a company, testing it out? And if you get a sense that it's worth something, you can always pursue what I did and take a break from Georgia Tech. Technically, I'm still on break. Uh, <laughs> So from that, and, I, and I've, I've, I'm proud to say there's been a few other uh, startups uh, within CreateX that have now taken a, the founders took a break from tech. I'm sure they'll go back to finish their degree someday, um, but they're off and, and, and racing to the, the next level of growing their business. So um, anyway, so I think it's a good time to do startups, and CreateX has been a program that uh, like I said, five years ago, we did an announcement. Hey, anybody got a startup they want to do this summer? We got eight companies in the first batch. Uh, and every year, we basically doubled. So we went from eight to 16 to 20 startups to 30. The last summer, we had 400 teams apply, and we had 40 slots available. And so we had 40 startups go through the program. Long term, my, the vision that I, that I have is that this goes and scales to uh, 300 startups, at least 100 startups every semester. Uh, and the idea is, I did some math, um, and you can check it yourself, but I was looking at like YC, you all heard of Y Combinator and Techstars. If you actually look at the data, how many startups did they have to fund to get to a uh, unicorn? And it turns out the ratio uh, early on, like for YC, was about 250 to 300. And when I looked at Atlanta's ecosystem, I'd say over five years, you might get uh, you know, 50 new startups every year. That's 250. Every five years, there's a unicorn popping up. I'm like, if we can just get more, more startups happening, if we get 300 startups, Every year, there should be, on average, at least one unicorn. And so I believe, I actually believe we have a unicorn already that's several potential unicorns already growing from CreateX batches previously. They got to scale to that size, so we'll see. But ultimately, if we can get that every year, the chance of you guys doing a unicorn goes up dramatically. What's interesting is the data shows that over time, YC's ratio of startups to unicorns actually uh, is shrinking in that, you know, I think they're down to about 100 
120 startups, one of those will be a unicorn. And the only place that does better, and I think it's due to access and maybe because of the, the style of startups is uh, Harvard. They're down to a ratio, like if you look at the data of how many startups they do that were series A, that then turn into unicorns, it's about a ratio of 80 startups to a unicorn, which I think long term you get some real good, what happens is you get network effect. The reason you want to be in CreateX isn't because of the funding, I mean it's an opportunity, you're going to get your, um, you know, you, you learn a lot, but also the big thing that you get that you don't get on your own, like if you want to do your own startup, I still would recommend joining an accelerator, whether it's CreateX, Techstars, any accelerator that you think would be beneficial. The real value in my mind uh, is at the end of the day is the network effect of who you're gonna get connected with in terms of smart people that can open up doors, whether it's in your industry, whether it's VC, whether it's angels, whether it's just good business advice, et cetera. That's the real value that I see with accelerators and it's kinda like working out. If you wanna work out by yourself, great. But if you're gonna be like a top athlete, you're probably gonna want a coach to really push you. And if you have other athletes also in your batch where you're all working out, you work harder because you see other people working out hard as well. And then if you see some other startup is doing better, how are they doing better? Why are they getting more customers? You start learning from each other. And we're actually seeing that with CreateX. I brought the, uh, the teams together last year that were across batches and like they all got up and talked about what, what challenges they were facing, like what do they need help on, and what, do they, what could they offer to others. And like one of the teams was like, hey, I've got a warehouse space, you know, anybody need space, you know, and we, four startups were like, yeah, we're moving in. Another, another uh, startup was like, hey, we're trying to raise model, money for, from a medical purpose, uh, and that's a very uh, specific kind of VCs or angels that will fund that. And there was another startup that had already been through that, that process. And so it was, you could just see that those kind of things where those doors open quicker because of the family that you create of the startups working together and collaborating. And then every startup has pledged to give back to tech. And every startup kind of has offered to come back and help you guys as you do startups. You know, as you see those guys, there's obviously the Georgia Tech alumni network, but also just the CreateX effect that, that's being put in place. And I think, I honestly believe we need some more bees, and what I mean by bees, some billion dollar companies um, being created here in Atlanta. Most of them are out in Silicon Valley. You know, it's the Googles, it's Facebooks, it's the Amazons. But I honestly believe uh, we're on task to get a lot more bees here. Um, I just had dinner with, um, have you guys heard of like OneTrust? If you haven't, it's a privacy company, and I want to say it was started maybe three, four years ago, and they're, they're adding about 150 uh, employees every month, which is huge. And the other thing they're doing that I, I find interesting is it's a privacy play. They require every employee to get certified in privacy, because there's a lot of privacy certification around the world, um, and so, Right now, Atlanta's on track to become the number one center or city for privacy. And so, and they're on track to be, a, a, I believe, unless they screw up somehow, they're a very good likely chance to be another billion dollar company, just like mine. 
And I was like, you know, one thing I don't, I think I want to see more of is billion dollar companies, but also not sell them too early. I think I sold too early, even though it was worth a lot. Um, in retrospect, you know, internet security is probably a 20, 50 billion dollar opportunity, not a $2 billion opportunity. And uh, anyway, so it's, it's, I think you guys are working on really interesting areas. I think Georgia Tech has strategic areas that I find where for CreateX, we should double down on. One of the areas, obviously, is cybersecurity. If you want to do cybersecurity, please jump in there. Love to help out on that side. But I'm, I'm excited about AI, excited by, about biomedical technology is emerging fast. Um, you know, there's a lot of trends that are occurring, and whenever you have big changes in technology and big changes in the trend of what you can do in those fields, there's a lot of amazing research happening here, and I'm like, can we convert that into actual startups? And so I've been working with uh, the CreateX team, Raul's in the back, who's who's uh, runs it every day. Do you guys all know Raul? If not, get to know that guy. He's helping. All you guys, uh, every day, if you have any questions around startups, et cetera. But ultimately, some of the things I'm looking at is, how do we make it easier that if tech has IP, how do we make it a, like a no negotiation process where you just show up and go, I want to use this in a startup. And we actually have a template for that. So if you, ha if you see IP here um, and you want to do a startup, let me know or let Raul know. We'll, we'll, we'd love to break down some of those barriers. Because if we do that, that's something that most other schools haven't figured out how to do, and I definitely think there's a lot of cool research going on. Or, and if, it, if you're not getting paid by Georgia Tech and you have your own IP, that's even better. You don't have to get a license from anybody. You own it. Um, so with that, that's kind of how, that's what I focus on with CreateX. I think it's, I think over the next year or so, it's going to scale. One of the biggest complaints I'd get, so just to give you a little kind of backdrop of how CreateX has been evolving, when I first started, I was like, I want to do it for undergrads, because I was an undergrad, you know, I was a freshman, and, and uh, into my sophomore year when I finally took a, went full-time on my startup, and I was like, I want to make sure freshmen could do a startup all the way up to, to graduates, and so that kicked off, and then we had master students and PhD students coming up going, how do I get in? So we opened it up to them, and then what's the, the, the next most common request I got was like, crap, I wish I knew about CreateX once I... Cause, but I'm graduating, you know, and I'm like, oh, too, too late. But we've actually are in the process of fixing that. So this year, we're doing an experiment. Uh, we're opening up for Georgia Tech alumni. There's about 160,000 Georgia Tech alumni. And so we want to market to all of that alumni and say, hey, you know, you've been out of school for a few years, or maybe you just graduated. Uh, if you got three months, come here, build a startup. You'll be doing it with a great team like Raul and, and the, a lot of the mentors and coaches and the stuff we're building. So even if you don't do a startup or you do one, it doesn't work out, do another one, keep doing it. And then I think at the, uh, I think as even if you graduate, not a big deal, that program we want to keep opening up. And we've actually got quite a few applications coming in from even the alumni network uh, that want to do startups. So I, see that really scaling. How do we scale that? That's one of the ways that we can scale it and really get some interesting um, play. And obviously, you have to have at least one student in the CreateX. The rest of your team can be, we have teams that are like from Emory. We had several Spelman teams. We've had teams that are 
from MIT, like a mix of MIT, Georgia Tech. It depends on who you network with and want to do a startup. Most importantly, find people you want to do a startup with. It's kind of like marriage. Um, don't get, I got married. Don't get married too young. Uh, make sure you get a prenup. And uh, <laughs> from that, uh, basically uh, focus on, because you're going to get married to your startup for probably you know, five years at least if you want it to be successful or, um, you know, it takes a while to get it figured out. And a lot of the guys that have been working on it, almost every one of the startups that have gone through CreateX, have, their assumptions were wrong and they've all pivoted, meaning I have yet to see one that shows up and goes, here's my business plan and it's going to work flawlessly, almost all of them. Once you start talking to customers, you realize, oh, they, they don't see that's valuable, but this other problem um, maybe I can build that, that that way, and they end up um, uh, pivoting to a better solution for that, that market. And so, so far, it's been very exciting to see what's happened. Um, have you guys heard about like some of the top startups like Fixed D? Have you guys heard about Fixed D? Um, anybody not heard of Fixed D? All right, there's a couple. How about Stored? Anybody heard, not heard of Stored? Everybody heard of Stored? Yeah. The, uh, I, I definitely think, and there's like Grubly Farms, I'm sure you've heard of. Anybody not heard of Grubly Farms? All right, so a couple people. Basically, I mean, it's, what's interesting is like, you got such diversity. Grubly Farms looked like a 4-H project. They were growing worms or, uh, in, in larvae, really. And I was like, what, what are you guys doing? And the next thing you know, they're like, no, we can take larvae. There's a black soldier fly in Georgia that quickly grows. It'll eat anything, and we're going to go out, find a lot of, uh, go to Kroger, Publix, all that food that gets uh, past its expiration date. Normally, they just put it in the landfill, so, you know, take it off to the dumpster. Um, so they, they went out and got all this food that's been spoiled, but larvae don't care if it's spoiled. And so larvae would eat that, and they basically are turning that into chicken feed. Georgia's a capital in poultry, which is, which is pretty exciting, and... For the chickens, they're, they're actually eating healthier because of uh, grubbly farms. Normally, they eat soy and some other stuff that wasn't very healthy, but chickens naturally eat bugs, and larvae is like the most pure form of a bug, so you can imagine the chickens are like, wow, this is actually healthier, and uh, um, so that's good. And they're, they're creating biofuel and fertilizer out of the bioproducts of the, uh, of the, of the larvae. And then stored, I think, is, gro is growing rapidly. They raised 15 million last year, uh, did over 10 million monthly revenue, and uh, they're on track. They're do what they do is warehousing, Airbnb style, right? Instead of going to find warehousing, you just work with them, and you can have 3,000 more, you know, warehouses all over the country. And so large companies love it because they're like, hey, how do I get a warehouse? Boom, here it is. I need one here, here, here. And the pricing's unified. It's very easy interface. Um, and what they're finding is a lot of these companies like the warehousing stuff, but they like the management of it all. So they have a nice dashboard they're finding that people, you know, if you're managing 200 warehouses, they're like, we're doing this on a spreadsheet every day, figuring out what's available here and there and trying to make it work. And they're automating it. So I think that's a killer solution. So there's a lot of really cool ideas that keep every year um, great stuff are, is popping up. So... Anyways, I've been talking about CreateX. I want to kind of leave it open up to questions or however you guys want to do it. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was awesome. <clears throat> I
I do want to emphasize um, that entrepreneurial ability. I uh, want to emphasize that uh, everyone in this room should try to apply to CreateX if you have some type of startup or idea. It's a fantastic program. I was actually fortunate enough to be part of it this past summer. Um, I was one of 40 teams, and it was, um, it was, it was immense. Um, they provide you with funding, they provide you with resources, uh, legal uh, aspects as well. Um, very supportive, a great team. Rahul's in the back as well. Um, fantastic individual. Um, he's all, honestly always open. You guys are always welcome to reach out to him as well for uh, support as well. Um, and Chris, thank you for that as well. Um, I wanted to kind of hit upon uh, your start. You know, you started kind of into the video games realm, kind of moved into internet security. But then recently, kind of you know, later into the, the 2000s, you kind of went back to the video game realm. Uh, so I kind of want to hear a little bit about maybe what you're doing in that realm with uh, Kaneva. Yeah. Um, see, see where you're up to there. Yeah. So I, I'm still passionate about video games. I've I've got two boys. Uh, uh, one of them just started at Georgia Tech, and then my younger one, he's 17. He's he's a uh, junior now in high school, and he'll he'll probably come to Tech as well um, if they let him in. Um, <laughs> But uh, but he's but fortunately they're both pretty good at computers and uh, with that though they love video games and so I'm I'm passionate about what's happening I'm I was very fortunate probably uh, close to ten years ago I was starting to express interest in video games and the governor started saying hey we want to help create entertainment in Georgia we actually passed the film and video game tax credit and. Um, so I was, I was the video game side of the, per, you know, it was all film people, and then I was the token gamer on the, on the thing going, let's make sure we incentivize gaming. So there's actually a, a tax credit for gaming, and basically it works out. If you're making a film or game in Georgia, for every dollar you spend, there's a tax credit benefit of 30 cents back to you, um, which is significant. Um, that being said, uh, the other thing a lot of people don't know, anybody here in the eSports, anybody love the eSports? Anybody on teams or doing any promotion? Nobody, somebody, a couple of hands. Y'all heard of eSports, so. Um, in Georgia, under the film tax credit, eSports gets covered as well. So if you're creating a big event here, you can actually uh, off-write your cost um, through this credit. And get for every dollar you spend, you're gonna get 30 cents back. And so which is nice if you're hiring the world's best uh, esports people or if you want to promote events. And so you're starting to see more events happening. Anybody make it to DreamHack or uh, there's some, there's a couple people. There's, uh, if you go to the Beltline, have you all been to Access Replay? Couple people, all right, well, check it out. It's cool, if you're on the Beltline, you're walking, had a beer, whatever, you can walk into a esports place and they have you know, competitions and stuff. So I, I do think it's the next form of, uh, I've always been hooked into, I, I like games more than film and, and TV shows. I like them both, but gaming's definitely more intense. And uh, I do think it's been growing. My, my personal aspiration was, and still is, um, I wanna make it easy for people to make games. And so one of the things I've been working on, I, I built a virtual world, and the one thing I've, it was kind of like a second life, and I had a lot of people building tons of content. So I probably had the largest database of like 3D models and textures for making worlds. And people, we, get, we allowed them to have a lot of creativity, and they built everything from like a Star Wars world to Star Trek to 
Roman Empire to the White House to whatever you thought of, when you have like 50,000 designers building stuff, they build everything. And so we have tons of fashion, tons of outfits and everything. Um, the issue I, I ran into is I didn't, I didn't monetize it. That's, make sure you put monetization into your business plan. Um, finally, I had too much money, and I was just having fun building the uh, virtual world, right? And so um, I wanted to get back into probably a, you know, enabling the platform to do more mobile, because that's a major trend line. And the game I built was all on the PC. And so about a year, two years ago, I did a reset and said, all right, I want to build a game that's cross-platform, that's mobile, that's web, that's VR, that's PC. And I was like, what game? And you guys have tried on VR. One of the experiences that you come away with is, man, you'll get sick if you run around in VR. Or I, I felt nauseous um, when I had the camera moving me around rapidly as I was an early beta tester of these vomit demos where you get sick. I was like, that's not fun. Um, and so, but the demos that kind of stood out were the, the like, here's a table where you could have dragons popping up on the table and playing almost like a card game. And I was like, oh, you know, it'd be kind of fun if I'm going to get into VR at some point. What's a good card game that can monetize? And I ended up picking poker. Anybody play poker here? Ah, oh, awesome. You guys need to try my game then. Um, and what I, what I find about uh, gaming is I do a lot of A-B testing. Um, I recommend that for any company. I do think a lot of the stuff I've learned from gaming, it's really a lot of psychology of like what motivates people, what gets people to come back. Uh, and there's just a lot of stuff you kind of like learn what's important, what's not important from A-B testing. Um, and so we've built in our gaming. Our game's free. It's not real poker. It is poker, it's as real as it can be, but it's not real gambling, I should say. It's, it's literally, you get free chips. If you sign in today, I'll give you a ton of free chips. Uh, and as you play, though, the way we scaled it, if you're interested, is we've made it where the, like, the, you start at smaller tables, you know, you can only afford the smaller tables, and the tables are kind of like Vegas. The tables get more and more expensive, and we even use a vernacular. You probably heard of whales in Vegas. These are the people who spent a lot of money. What's interesting is we went from like $50,000 in chips at the smallest table all the way up to, I don't know, five, ten billion dollars for the higher table. So it's a huge difference. And all the way up, it requires more and more chips to get to the higher tables. Well, you can either play your way to the top, which 97% of our users are free. They will never spend, I don't believe. Um, and 3% will spend, and they buy the chips. Thank God for them. Uh, and then of that 3%, I'd say 1% of the 3%, which is a small number, but it turns out they're, they're called the whales. You know, a lot of people will spend $10, $20, but there's a few people that will spend thousands of dollars. We love those guys. Uh, and we have players that have been spending... And the thing is, is it's not get, nobody's walking away going, hey, I'm putting all my money in so I can uh, you know, pay off my mortgage or anything, because it's just entertainment. It's purely chips for simulated fun, right? Um, but people really enjoy it. They love it. They get into it. Uh, we've been doing poker. One, because I wanted to do VR, I'll just give you a little bit of my run, uh, roadmap for this year if you're interested. 
One of the things we did is we're, we're the only poker game today on your mobile and PC that's like really immersive. Like it's your character, you got an avatar, you can get clothing. Um, we're about to upgrade our clothing shop. We haven't done it. We made it real simple. Go in, buy clothing for chips. But we're about to roll out. We'll test it. We'll see if it works. Um, but we're adding rarity. You guys probably familiar with epic and legendary loot. We're going to put rarity in there. We're also going to put some uh, chests. So if you want to open up a chest, you know, here's a prize. And in that way, uh, some of that clothing will be rare. Uh, we'll put some boosts and other things in there. And the idea is I want to experiment and see what that does for our revenue. Right now, we're selling a lot of chips, but will people spend a lot of money for clothing? I don't know, but my guess is, you know, looking at Fortnite, Overwatch, a few of those games. Um, I've got a girlfriend now, I'm no longer married, so, but she's really into uh, Overwatch, and so we have a lot of fun. She's um, trying to get into esports, and uh, but when I look at their revenue mo model, it's I think they're a billion dollar game. And anybody playing COD at all, Call of Duty, mobile, handful? Okay, don't be afraid to you know shake your hand, whatever. But uh, it's you know, but it's it's driven by there's two patterns that we're going to try out this year. One is loot chests or boxes or whatever you want to call them. The other one is a lot of the battle games now have battle passes. Anybody familiar with battle passes? I kind of want to do a poker tour, poker pass, um, kind of the same idea. You buy the pass, here's a free tier, here's a premium tier, you play that. So we're going to roll that out. The other thing we're having a debate internally on, be interested if you guys play poker. I haven't seen any other poker games, but a lot of games have clans. You can join a team, team up. There's an incentive to be on the team because you can add multiplier effects and benefits to being on a team. So one of the things we're going to do is try that for poker. And it, originally it was like, oh, this is a home run. But I want to A-B test it because I'm a little nervous because up till now, poker is a deathmatch game. The person walking away with the most money wins, right? If you play a tournament at poker, like World Series of Poker, whoever is the last person with all the money just won, right? And so when we, I was like, man, if we can add teams, nobody's done that. But there's a little bit of a concern, could be collusion, like could teams team up and does that make it feel like you're cheating? So we're going we're gonna to try it out and maybe make certain tables where teams or clans get incentivized, but our cash game probably won't have clans. Like you, you'll be able to go and if you want to work together, that's fine. You can work with your friends, et cetera, but we're going to see if that helps. But right now I've heard... Um, that's a huge driver towards retention. Obviously, actually, I, talk, I don't know if this is true for you guys, but you probably played a game, got bored with it, but you end up playing the game just to be with the people that you've made friends with. Anybody done that? RuneScape? Okay, there's somebody who's still playing RuneScape. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's, it's and in fact, it's funny. I, had my, uh, I did an, an accelerator called NeuroLaunch uh, just across the street, and the uh, one of the partner that I had helping me with that. He was a biomedical engineer graduate, um, but he he lived on RuneScape, and he was like, "Oh man, I, I made so much money selling virtual goods on RuneScape." Um, but and I think he still logs in every once in a while. But anyway, so I did, those are some of the things that we're looking at this year. You know, having in terms of monetization. If you're interested in gaming and you want to know how that does, feel free to reach out. Um, but it's an area that I'm. I'm interested because long term I want to take kind of what things 
are driving, um, helping. And if you look at uh, the enterprise space, I, I've, I've, as I talk with like even enterprise companies, like if I had a cybersecurity company today, I'd probably apply a lot of the progression systems you see, like they call them loyalty programs, Delta has one, Hertz has one, but gaming really has taken it to another level and I actually think more companies should build that in. Once you get enough, you validate your business, you can start layering in a whole you know, VIP program and helping people get recognized for being awesome customers and um, that can all be put into the interface because even though you're selling into companies, what you find out is every, you're really dealing with people, right? And so gaming, what works with gaming works with people that works with even large companies. And I honestly think we've done experiments where like signing up and get a thousand points, even if the, nobody even knows what the points are until they sign up, converts better than not having points. You know, if you don't say anything, just sign up, you'll get like a small one, two percent bump just by offering points for signing up. You could have it where you don't do anything with points, but I got two more people to sign up than I did normally. So, anyways, should I go with questions? Sure, go for it. It's a good question. It's so there's three criteria, and it's pretty simple. But you can pay an attorney to tell you this. But it's. The, the legal behind it is there's three things that have to be true for it to be gambling. It has to be money in, game of chance, and money out. If you take any one of those away, it's not gambling. And so your question is, could you have a tournament at the top where the money is there, money out, as long as no one puts money in? Yeah, so... And it, yes, and I've actually seen it where through advertising, they were like, hey, we're going to get enough users and we'll offer a prize money. The player never put money into the system, so there's no money in, but you can give away money. Like, I can give away money today, right? Boom, here's money. And I could, I could be like, you know, whoever rolls a six. But as long as I don't tell you guys, hey, if you want to enter this game I'm making, if I don't charge you, if I do charge you a dollar to be in my game and then offer a $5 prize, now I'm gambling and now I'm creating an illegal game. So the answer is you can offer money at the top as long as you don't take money in. So that's something that I'm considering when I do an eSports event. I could be like, look, for the players coming who are in the event, I'm not charging a fee. Any, I can't charge a fee, but I'll put a monetary prize at that, maybe charge ticket prices for the spectators. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, the other thing I saw my son was pointing out, he pl anybody play Rocket League? Alright, you got a bunch of... He, He's gonna be excited coming here, playing you guys. Um, watch out, he's, he's pretty good. I can only say that because I tried playing with him. He's like, Dad, you better give up. But uh, <laughs> he basically, but he's real good. He's, uh, but he was saying like, one of the things that I'm looking at possibly doing for eSports inside of poker would be, if you're watching, you can hook your account up to Twitch and it tracks how, many, how long you're watching and then you can offer virtual goods 
for Twitch watchers, and that builds your audience that way. So um, Rocket League does that. Like, hey, if you're watching Rocket League on, on Twitch, you get unique in-game items. To me, that's kind of an interesting way to incentivize an audience and do it online. Like, we'll probably start off with like having these online events um, without physically doing it, because that costs money and time, and you got to rent a sp space. Can we do an online virtual version of it? Long term, it'd be great to actually, as you say, physically have it here, and maybe fly in the world's best poker players, and then um, you know stream it via whether it's Mix or Twitch or whatever the latest streaming services. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for expounding upon that. Uh, looks like you've been up to quite a bit, um, kind of recently. Um, I wanted to take a couple questions from the uh, Instagram um, that people submitted. Um, this one is actually from Jacob. Um, I'm gonna add a little bit of a twist to it, but um, I guess when you were starting ISS, um, there, some of the emerging technologies was um, internet security. Currently, it's more along the lines of maybe machine learning or you know, internet of things. Um, where do you see the, uh, the, the entire ecosystem uh, maybe in the next 20 years? Man, it's hard, hard to go past three years. Um, I, you know, I, I definitely think over the next 20 years, uh, yeah, probably the biggest trend that's occurring, in my opinion, would be AI. And I would say AGI with a general intelligence. Right now, AI is very good at figuring out chess and checkers and all kinds of games. And they're now playing StarCraft and other games, almost any video game you can put AI in and it'll start kicking our, our butts. Um, but it's very specific to that game. Very rarely does it step out and say, oh, while I was playing this game, I was thinking about this other problem. You know, and so that's, AI doesn't do that today, right? It's very focused. I think long term, um, you know, the, m the smartest people I meet typically are people who have a broad uh, set of patterns that they've accumulated. Typically, I'm looking for people who are smart in other fields, and then we brainstorm, and usually that's where really interesting ideas kind of emerge, where it's like, oh, I wasn't aware of that pattern. That's where I find it interesting, where I, I apply gaming knowledge and patterns to enterprise, you know, and, or maybe cybersecurity or AI. That's where it kind of becomes interesting. So I do think uh, AI is going to be one of the areas that's pretty exciting. I definitely think um, the whole CRISPR and coding genes and all that spot, that's probably going to be a blend of AI, figuring that out with humans, with how do we code the next uh, living organisms. That's kind of occurring today, but at a, a slow rate, I would imagine, over the next 20 years. That should speed up, is my guess. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, one of the areas I am focused on that I think is critical uh, is is uh, sustainable slash renewable slash climate change kind of solutions. I think that's an area that will be key. I just met with um, Southern Company. They're based here in Georgia. Um, large, uh, they have they own Georgia Power. You probably heard of that. Um, what's interesting is it's become very serious for them. Uh, they now have committed to reducing their carbon footprint. I think 100% uh, by 2050 cut it in half by 2030. I'm like, all right, you guys, I think that's a good start. Uh, more importantly, the CEO, his compensation is tied to it. So when you get your compensation uh, tied to something, you usually get motivated to try and address it. Um, and whether he addresses it or the next CEO addresses it, it's in the compensation for a southern company. And I think that's a trend that we're going to see over the next five, 10 years 
that companies and uh, a lot of the, fortunately like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon have all committed to starting to reduce it, you know, but I think, you know, like Georgia Tech, why aren't we committed to making zero carbon footprint here? Uh, and I think that's a trend that we should be asking ourselves. And, it, and I, a lot of people are like, why don't you not fly? And I'm like, well, a couple reasons. I don't think that's the long-term solution. I think it's a societal change. It's changing from coal and natural gas, has to move towards like solar, wind, even nuclear. Um, those are things that are occurring. I keep up on it. Uh, it's an area that's really exciting. If you have a startup idea that has anything in that area, I'm very, very interested in that space. Um, I met with Dr. Cobb, who's a professor here. If you're in interested, have you all heard of Dr. Cobb? If you haven't and you're interested in sustainability, you should meet her. She's in the um, Kanita building, Kandetta building, Kandita building. It's the first living built, they call it living design building, I think. Um, and it's, it's actually pretty cool. The building is the only building on campus that's a net positive. If I, if I knew about that, like, I don't know if it was even feasible when I did Klaus building, but I would have probably required it. But it's the only building that doesn't require power. It's a net positive, meaning it's generating power because it's got solar. And it's also uh, pretty cool in that the, the toilets and the whole uh, bathroom isn't hooked up to the city sewage. It's completely 100% self-contained. Um, so when you flush it, it goes into like some underground processing um, plant capability, you know, on a building basis and uh, becomes fertilizer. So really cool stuff that if every building in Atlanta or in, in the world starts switching to that model as, as we continue to build buildings, it'd be nice to have a more follow those patterns because if we were there today, you know, we wouldn't have carbon. Uh, or at least a lot less carbon in the world. And I, those are patterns I'd like to see the city and the state and the country move towards. And I definitely think Georgia can be a leader in that area. So I think over the next 20 years, I'd like to move faster than 20 years, but I definitely think over the next 10, 20 years, the environment may become one of the most critical things facing us, just because my mom's always been, I grew up in Florida with a lot of animals. My mom loves animals, so we had, um, dogs, cats, we had a pet store. So we had pretty much every animal. And t even today we have a, a farm where we have like 10 horses, a bunch of cows, an alligator. Um, so anyways, it, but within that we keep on track of like wolves. Right now they're almost extinct if you like wolves. Um, and so a lot of stuff is how do we start taking care of our environment and taking care of other, other life on the planet. Otherwise, everything will be in a zoo and uh, may not be good for us either. Definitely. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, I want to move into a little bit of a short segment um, called uh, Fire Round here. I'm just going to ask you a little short, quick questions. Sure. Um, just say the kind of the first thing that comes up to your oh, mind. Um, you know, not meant to trick you. Yeah. Is there a bleep or a <laughs> you, you can have a tap roll out, back? Or, hey, let me <laughs> change my answer. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's just get started. Just sure. Quick answers if possible. Um, what's your favorite thing to do in your free time? Oh man, uh, uh, I don't know, video games. <laughs> favorite snack? Oh man, chips. Biggest influence or mentor? Man, uh, I, I would say I, I, probably Noonan taught me most about business. What did you eat for breakfast today? I don't eat breakfast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is the last book you read? Oh, man. Uh, 
my mom's book. She wrote a book. Oh, cool. And, uh, wolves in the Crosshair, hence the wolf uh, stuff. Learned a lot about wolves. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. Um, speaking of wolves, if you were an animal in the wild, what animal would you be? Oh, wolf. Oh, that was a layup. <laughs> Made easy, it easy. easy. Um, what's your favorite gadget slash product from the last year? Oh, man. Uh, favorite gadget? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like this. Obviously, uh, cell phone is probably uh, always like updating that. And I've had a Tesla updating that. I'm trying to think of a good gadget, though. Um, I just recently got a gamer phone from Asus. ROG 2 phone, pretty kick-ass. Last three days, probably best phone on the market. Last three days? The battery's like 6,000 amps oh, wow. or, so, or milliamps or whatever. So it's, uh, it has a long battery life. Um, if you're playing games, it's going to be a lot less, but uh, it's got a great screen. T take a look at it, Asus ROG, and uh, if you're into games, definitely recommend that phone. Speaking of favorite video game. Oh, man. Um, Poker. <laughs> Last question, favorite restaurant in Atlanta? Oh, man. Jeez. Oh, man, great, great question. Uh, so many great restaurants. Uh, I mean, I think the Waffle House is pretty good. Hey, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> awesome. Um, so we're going to open up to uh, some audience questions now. If anyone has any specific questions they want to ask uh, Chris, they're welcome to raise their hand. Um, yeah. You got a question over there? If I can repeat the question, what I think I heard was, what's my biggest fear around AI and, and the Neuralink? Yeah, I don't. You know, I guess I guess you could. I'm I'm not sure AI itself will be. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like fire, right? Fire can be used for good, keep you warm. Can also be used for bad. And so, um, you know, long term, hopefully we have a society where, for the most part, we use it for good. I mean, that's that's the key thing. I don't I don't think AI itself is inherently good or bad. I think how you use it and really the intent. Um, and, and I think uh, others like Elon have come out and said, hey, we need to regulate this. I don't know how you regulate something that we can all go home and download the latest, you know, PyTorch or TensorFlow or whatever tools and apply it to whatever. Um, and then maybe you guys are building AI, the next AI solution. Um, I don't know if I have a fear of it. It's just more, you know, let's keep an eye out and see how it's going to get utilized. Hopefully... Most of us use it for the, the better. That's, that's the key. And um, I think, you know, working with uh, politicians, hopefully they will want to use it more for the good and not for killing others. <laughs> Do you see any unmet needs in the cybersecurity industry? There's huge unmet needs. So, in fact, I, I actually think we could be cranking out probably five to 10, 20 cybersecurity companies every year. Um, it's such a big space, uh, and the reality is, uh, even in the early days, every single uh, new kind of technology curve that comes out, where whether it's Wi-Fi or AI or 
biomedical or healthcare tech or fintech or just anything that has any new mass adoption usually doesn't have good security by default. And you could build the f first you know, policy around it. You could build something that did what I did 20 years ago, which was audit it. You could build a monitoring system around it. Those are like, right off the bat, you could build systems around it. Um, and I think those are areas that become very easy to apply security to almost Almost anything, you know, whether it's authentication and identity management and, you know, I think, I think what we're finding as a society, the more you can make security seamless, the better, uh, meaning we don't want to have to remember 50 passwords, we don't have to, um, I do think there's some major privacy issues, you know, with surveillance kicking in. I think there's a counter security issues, like how do you not get caught by every camera that's out there. I don't here's a fact, I don't know if you know this. Atlanta's the number one city, I think, in the US in terms of cameras. And I went into the 911 center downtown, and they had uh, I want to say like 50,000 cameras. And what you don't know is that every business that has a camera is feeding into it. And so they didn't put all the cameras up themselves. That was smart. Like in the UK, they had to install their own cameras. Here, they were like, we'll just, there's cameras on the outside of every building if you look around. And so they feed that into the 911 center. So I was, and I was like, oh, so you can plug in any address. And they're like, yeah, Im immediately we can see what's happening on any street corner. I was like, ooh, there's some probably bad things you guys have done on some street corners. Be careful. Um, but basically, the one good news is they're like, we don't record it longer than, I think, 24 hours. They're like, if we, may, if we kept it longer than 24 hours, imagine the legal, the lawyers and the liability, and they'd be spending their entire day. That and there's probably a big question around, do we want a society where something you did 20 years ago is still on somebody's camera, right? Um, and so right now it's a 24-hour retention of your video. Um, and the idea is they don't want to be stuck serving up video for, you know, imagine every, every car wreck, you know, you'd, you'd be going down there going, I want that video of my accident. And so they keep it, they really want it for 911, what the hell's happening, let's d dispatch whether it's a real issue or not. And so good news is we have a lot of surveillance for 911, bad news is there's a lot of surveillance. It's a great question. Um, I would probably say, you know, it's as you grow your team, you're going to want to do this anyways, is because you got everybody you bring on, especially early on, you know, up to 100 employees, you kind of got to trust them all because they're all part of the team. And, you know, uh, early on, if you don't get the right people, it has huge impact, right? And so if it's your co founder, it has really big impact. Um, I would say, you know, for me, when I found Tom, he didn't co-found it, but basically was a co-founder with me and that we took it and started really scaling it. Um, you know, I interviewed him and, you know, it seemed like he knew what he was talking about. And then I think most importantly is I interviewed uh, his referrals, you know, people that he had worked with and everybody gave him outstanding uh, 
you know, kind of like, oh, man, I'd give this my heart and soul for this guy. And I was like, well, if you're saying that, that must mean you trust them, right? Do I, you know, and, and I, I would argue um, at an early stage, it's, it's kind of hard, at a, like if you have another Georgia Tech student, other than, you know, you can kind of see how they do, I don't know, in life. Do they take responsibility real? Um, you'll, you'll know very quickly. And I, probably when you do your startup, you'll, you'll quickly figure out people who want to stick, stick with the startup. You know, after three months, a lot of them are like, ah, this isn't really for me. And so it's, it's been interesting. A lot of the startups have gone through reconfigurations just because the right team wasn't put together initially. But it's okay. You know, the way the, the startup's structured, you can kind of carry it on, and Raul and, and others will help you, like, figure out and navigate that. I would also argue, um, you know, a lot of people, when you raise money, you got to trust your VC, too. That's a, that's a love-hate type of thing. If you, if you get the right VC, you love them. If you don't get the right investors, you might, you might not like them. And uh, the thing I did uh, was try to find who else they invested in, you know, whether it's an angel investor or a VC, I'd always be like, well, who else, especially in my space, you know, that I can talk to that can tell me about all the great stuff you did for them. And so I spent a lot of time, because as a startup founder, my, you know, you hear, I, I heard stories like, oh, the VCs, once they put money, they'll fire you. I was like, well, I don't want to take someone's money and then get fired the next day. And so I talked to a lot of other, I guess, found, technical founders, and that was a thing that I, I, you know, that they were technical founders. I was like, how did this VC treat you? And they, they had very positive things. So I, I would highly, highly recommend what, anytime you're going to make a serious commitment, whether it's a co-founder or your first 100 employees or VCs, spend the extra time um, coming up with all the questions. You know, nice thing about nowadays, you can go on Google and be like, what are all the questions I should ask an investor? What are all the questions I should ask a co-founder? And they, there's like 300 questions. And you can then make sure you go in depth and really as best as you can uh, do that. The other thing I do a lot of times, I'll, if I'm uh, interested in hiring somebody or working with somebody, uh, usually if I'm hiring, I want to do a background check. You can go on, especially if they've been in the industry, this is a hack you can do later, go on LinkedIn. It shows you like who else looks at their profile. You can quickly figure out like who are some of the other people that know that person, and you can un you know through unsolicitation of uh, where they you don't want them to be on the referral list because that's obviously a biased list that they give you if they're smart. I've had a few where you're like, why did you put that on there? You're you know that was a bad referral. But uh, usually usually their the referrals are they're good they're good ones. But if you can find people that will be honest about somebody uh, and uh, open up to you, then you can kind of figure out from other people who've known them longer. Um, that's, that's probably some recommendations. We have time for one more question. Uh, take your pick. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> how about way off in the corner there? Yeah, good question, good question. I'd say, like, at probably the stage most of you guys would be at if you're starting a company. Um, this is, so what I did, um, 
early, early on uh, that helped is, and I would recommend it, in any industry you're going to, on the internet, there's probably a forum or a mailing list, a Reddit group, somewhere on the internet, they're talking, Twitter, somebody's talking about the area that you're gonna do a startup in. Is that fair to say? So I joined those groups. And so when I did that for cybersecurity, back then it was mailing lists. There wasn't even, we really didn't even have a browser per se. And um, on the mailing list, uh, I created, I, I joined all the security mailing lists, and then I created my own security mailing list. On the ones that I didn't create, um, but I joined, you know, the night I would do sock puppeting just to kind of build some awareness where you like, not me, but somebody else, quote, quote, uh, would post like, hey, does anybody know a great security tool to find vulnerabilities? And then I'd, oh, hey, look, here's a great tool. Check this out. And so, you know, you kind of build some awareness that way. That was a good way to kind of get people that were on the list that were in the security field aware of us. Nowadays, I still recommend if you want to do that grassroots just to get some initial customers, but I also would recommend using Google and Facebook. I think Facebook even so, more so. I'll tell you a quick story. A Georgia Tech guy, um, friend of mine, he, he and his brother started um, a company, uh, really his brother did. He, found, he went on Etsy, he wanted an organic um, deodorant. And he went on Etsy and there was like 20 deodorant solutions or products on there that people made at their house and they were all organic, and he, so he bought all of them and tried them out and run around, put deodorant on it and smell it and be like, all right, that, that smelled good or it became runny, et cetera. Anyways, he found one, and, he, and then he turned around and he was like, hey, this is working for me. I'm gonna sell it. He put it on Facebook, meaning put the ads on Facebook, put a really simple site up. Make your site as simple. The less information, the better. The more you just say, look, here's organic deodorant. Here's a couple of benefits. Click here to buy. That's what they did. And basically ran ads and uh, literally started selling it. And uh, in the, in the, each, each day it was growing, growing through those ads. And they were calling up the lady who was making the deodorant. And she's like, holy cow, I'm, you, know, you, you bought all my inventory. I can only make so much in my bathtub. Um, <laughs> you know, and he's like, well, can I, can I buy the recipe from you? And she, she sold it. And so he could mass produce it, and he ended up finding somebody to, to, to make it, not in the bathtub, but more mass, mass produce it, and then scaled the heck out of it through Facebook. And, that, and somehow Facebook's AI algorithm for finding people who would want to see this ad is pretty good, right? You guys have seen ads where you're like, are they listening to me? You know, how, how did they figure that one out? Who knows, right? They probably are listening. And... If you said organic deodorant, next thing you know, boom, you got ads showing up. They, they, they ended up uh, selling the company very rapidly to Procter & Gamble within a year or two for like $90 million, selling that one product with one website direct to the consumer. And I was like, that's a game changer when you can do that. And if you actually talk to Fix D, where I mentioned them earlier, they're, they're a car interface. You put a little Bluetooth adapter in your car, uh, feeds into your phone. Now you have an app that basically does what a mechanic does for $400 or $300. They do for $50, right? 
And then when I, when I talked to the CEO, he's like, yeah, we really cracked the code when we did very, very simple website. You can go figure out what they did on their website. It's very simple. Uh, and then it's like, buy now. And they did an affiliate model where they would basically cut other marketers like 20%, 30% for every sale that they brought to that site. And immediately overnight, um, you know, they've scaled it up to, they did like 60 million in revenue last year. So in many cases, I would highly recommend build a website. And even if you don't have a product done, you know, have a buy now button and take the order, call them up, be like, why did you buy this? Do your customer discovery that way, because that's, that's a whole lot cheaper than calling up a lot of random people and hope you, these are people who want to buy your product and they've already clicked buy. You just haven't built it yet. Go build it, and uh, now you can sell it. And if you built it, great. You, you now have a customer. But I would highly recommend that now. We didn't have that. That's why I used mailing lists back then. And uh, definitely think internet is the best and only way to scale marketing today. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do. You can do. You can go to conferences. You can go to different events. But I really think uh, your number one conversion is going to be online. Whether if it's enterprise, I'd say LinkedIn is huge. If it's consumer, it's Facebook, it's Google um, as being those networks. Those are your three uh, areas. And then you can do organic, but those would be the three I would. And the nice thing is you can put in the metrics now. What's changed in marketing is in the past, you didn't know how much money on marketing converted into real dollars. You can actually figure out exactly what the cost is for customers. We do that for our game, right? I know exactly how much to spend on every user because I know um, I can set a what they call CPI or CPA cost per install or cost per acquisition and say I'm not going to pay more than three dollars or two dollars per user and as long as my lifetime value is higher than that for those customers then scale it up in the, you know the unlimited budget at that point if that makes sense the thing is that at some point you tap out the size of that market awesome. at that price. Cool. Thank you so much. Let's uh, let's give him a round of applause. <laughs> Fantastic. Hope to hope to see you guys uh, with a startup in the future. And if you if you need any help, let me know how I can help. And Raul in the back, CreateX is here for you. And definitely, I'd like to see you guys build some billion dollar companies, donate some buildings, and uh, <laughs> you know you can be up here as well. Maybe we'll be on a panel together. Thank you All guys. Right, thanks. We're gonna. We're going to break out into around a 30-minute networking session, so feel free to meet each other. We have some of the smartest minds in the world in this room, so definitely start a conversation, start talking about what you guys are interested in. Again, thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you.